Hello, my name is Gaia Woods. I am an MA candidate in the Clinical Psychology program at Antioch University, Los Angeles, with a specialization in spiritual depth psychology. I am also an MFT trainee at Women's Clinic Counseling Center, where I work under the supervision of Angela Cordova Dunning, MFT, and Carla Becker, MFT. This recording was made to shine light on the perspectives of spiritual depth psychology professors, students, and alumni here at Antioch University, Los Angeles. This recording was made in conjunction with an independent study for the spiritual depth psychology course entitled Life as Practice, Inner Work, Social Responsibility, and Community Service. Please enjoy this conversation between myself, Gaia Woods, and Antioch University, Los Angeles, SDP student, Evan Perlow. So today I have Mr. Evan Perlow. Welcome, Evan. If you um, can just say your name and where you're from, and just a brief little introduction about, um, you know, maybe where you are in your studies here at Antioch, that would be wonderful. Sure. So my name is Evan Perlow. I grew up in Calabasas, um, California, probably about half an hour to 45 minutes from me. And I'm in my very last quarter at Antioch. So excited. Yeah. And um, I only have one class right now in practicum. So two classes, but one that has units. And um, yeah, I feel like um, My experience here was very much like I did a lot of my schoolwork and now I'm at my training site. Mm -hmm. And so it feels a little different than what I think other people have done where they've been at school full time and they're training like right. you have. Yeah, true. Well, I want to hear about, um, so I guess some of the things that I would like to talk about today are just sort of what brought you to be interested in studying spiritual depth psychology and then also I would love to hear about practical applications of how you use that work with your clients or if you use that work with your clients and things like that. But first I'd love to just hear sort of what brought you to want to study spiritual depth psychology or sort of like where your interest in it lies. Yeah, so I think I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of like the odd person in, in this group where I <clears throat> I have kind of an aversion to the word spirituality <laughs> okay. and the spiritual piece as far as I understood it was um, kind of a combination of the mindfulness meditation part and then mm -hmm. what seems to be like the Jungian um, piece of what is more than just like the materialism of psychology of like that there's something that happens in our experience that's connected to kind of a woo-woo <laughs> yeah. piece of existence. Yeah. And so, um, so I think largely I was like really interested in the psychodynamic piece mm -hmm. and, and then meditation has been a big part of my life and I yeah. was curious how those were going to intersect in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because from what I know about you, you are a big meditator. You lead a meditation group here at Antioch. Did. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. Not yeah. Anymore. Not anymore. Um, hopefully it's not because of low attendance, because I 
who meditate myself never actually made it <laughs> but um but yeah so that seems like that's a big part of your practice is sort of um meditation and just pursuing that sort of aspect of whatever you would call that maybe not spiritual if that's not a word that um suits you but just sort of a, an alternative sort of approach to psychology or sort of mind body spirit kind of connection if you want to call it that yeah um, I did make some peace with the word spirituality like, yeah. a couple of years ago when I read Sam Harris's book, uh, Waking Up, okay. where he, he sh- like gives a few words that seem to be trying to capture what this meditation connecting of human beings and like largely with compassion, mm-hmm. um, and that there's been other words like, um, uh, I'm blanking now, um, uh, what's it called? <laughs> oh, contemplative practices, mm. uh, mysticism, mm-hmm. and that spirituality seems to capture it mm-hmm. kind of best. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, well, I don't know. Where were we going with that? Oh, just sort of how you came to spiritual depth psychology. I mean, yeah. I found that in general... Every therapist you talk to or every um, psychology student you talk to sort of has a different um, story as to why they sort of came to be interested in pursuing the field and sort of, um, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit different, I find, for every sort of specialization. So the, I guess the intended audience for this um, audio recording is really anyone who's interested in psychology, first and foremost, but also, you know, people who might be interested in studying um, psychology and possibly spiritual depth psychology here at Antioch, or just interested in spiritual spiritual depth psychology in general and just sort of want to learn more about it. So I always want to know why someone cares about the things that they care about, basically. Totally. Um, Yeah, yeah, you know, when when I first starting Antioch, I think I went to the most extreme of what I've considered the woo-woo um, part of spirituality that I haven't connected well. And so yeah. there was there was this very bizarre, um, like, why am I getting gravi- why am I gravitated toward um, this piece? And it was when I went to Brazil with with Antioch. Oh yeah. Um, and we went to uh, a mental health clinic where the spiritual component was the central piece of of like the healing helping model mm-hmm. and it was hinged on uh this religious um this religion spiritism mm-hmm. um which subscribes the idea of mediumship and what is mediumship uh it's like that i channel that i am a vessel for spirits mm, okay. uh, not me but one is um, one yeah so people who claim to be mediums can communicate with spirits i say yeah, yeah. um and so their idea was that psychosis, um, I guess not all the time, but sometimes is actually just a spiritual um, muck up as far as oh, like a spirit is trying to communicate. And yeah, what a nice reframe. Yeah, right? Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they have a really interesting model as far as um, just learning how to better channel. Mm-hmm. And... I was not on board with like the the literal piece that this is a mm-hmm. spirit trying to communicate like that doesn't really add up for me mm-hmm. but working with it like whatever so um, 
you know, I also don't have a good, like, substitute, a substitution explanation for Mm -hmm. what they're claiming. Yeah. So I couldn't say I think I know it's something else. Sure, sure. But what I found so great was, like, it was the environmental piece of, like, we're going to create a place where you can come in, we're going to give you some options so they would have, like, writing or dancing or Mm -hmm. different outlets and, um, and we'll just kind of train that muscle Mm -hmm. for better working with like your your psychosis if you want to call it that or whatever this this un unintegrated disturbing piece of your existence Mm -hmm. and I could really sign on board with that yeah that sounds fascinating yeah 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 I remember hearing about when you just got on that trip and we're coming back and it sounded like a fascinating trip, and it still does. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess um, before we move on to sort of questions about, I'm curious about how you sort of, you know, apply the ideas contained within um, spiritual depth psychology with your clients, but also um, I would love to hear, so when you say woo-woo spirituality, <laughs> just to clarify what you mean by that, I'm curious. Is that because I have my own sort of association with what I think that means, but it may not be the same as what you intend, so yeah, I don't know what totally. you mean. Yeah. So I'm sure I'll uh, alienate myself somehow right now. Oh, um, I'm right here with you, don't okay, worry. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> we can almost hold hands across the table. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> um, so things like astrology, mm-hmm. um, this whole idea of mediumship, of that there are other dimensions where spirits are existing. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are things that you feel don't resonate with the ideas or values that you hold or believe in. Yeah, they yeah. they don't... They have... On the one hand, I haven't really invested in them. Mm-hmm. So there's something just at the outset that makes me uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, we could describe that that's probably a whole thing in itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess I've found that for me, the most important part of like my own healing and journey has been mm-hmm. the mundane mm. and what's not exciting and mystic or what seems to be called mystical for other people. So things like synchronicity mm-hmm. and, um, you know, like, a a meteorological event Mm-hmm. somehow coinciding with my own stuff mm. hasn't been very instructive mm-hmm. and it's in fact like been pushing into what doesn't seem like what doesn't seem to have a whole lot of inherent importance mm-hmm. so like boredom and fatigue mm-hmm. and irritability um are more sort of learning experiences for you the yeah boredom, like the, the fatigue and development. yeah like the experience of feeling disconnection and, well, I guess mm-hmm. that actually has a lot more about, like, what I'm describing is not mm-hmm. having a whole lot of apparent meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, like, being in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> like, these yeah. things that seem so mundane. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother, who's a rabbi, um, he was writing a book on, on like, finding, I think, his word, holiness, for kind of what we're talking about mm-hmm. in everyday things. So, like, making coffee. Mm. or going up in an elevator with strangers. But mm-hmm. the one thing that was totally not holy was traffic. <laughs> nice. And I was like, oh, I think that actually has some of the most value. It's, it's like, in a nutshell, so emblematic of our struggle in like today, like this feeling of mm-hmm. aloneness, of like getting somewhere, of 
Mm-hmm. And also, for me, it brings up a lack of control. Yeah. I mean, a huge lack of control. I yeah. feel like that is my explanation for road rage as well because of people feeling out of, I mean, this is my explanation, but a feeling out of control and then sort of like wanting to be able to do something and then you sort of like lose a part of your rational self, you know? Totally. And, this yeah. In this like fantasy of if I like make a few different turns, yeah, like that get you're going to get there faster and yeah. somehow be, you know independent in the system of this block of stuckness yeah <laughs> you know yeah. and it's it's i think no coincidence that like one of the most common tropes in meditation talks is like how are you in traffic like what is that oh, like really? for you? i oh, mean i don't know if it's one of the most cool, yeah. but it's definitely you've noticed it yeah, yeah. and so yeah. i think it's a great place for practice yeah um, well and i think that's a good point too about um i mean when you say that i immediately what comes to mind is just the idea of mindfulness in everyday life which you know, to me is a big part of my interest in um, spiritual depth Mm. sort of topics and ideas. And I agree with you also about having this sort of knee-jerk reaction to some of the um, more mystical, if it's astrology or, you know, something that's so intangible. Um, Not that this is, you know, about my opinions, this is your show. But, you know, I, I share that sort of idea of like, oh, I want there to be a tangibility to something that I can sort of hold on to. And yeah. this is an academic program of study, even if it is a study of the mind, I still want there to be something that is tangible about that. Um, and I think that integrating the idea of mindfulness in whatever way it sort of works and suits for you to be able to learn from in terms of your everyday life or your practice with clients or meditations that you do is really um kind of a hallmark of what i associate at least with the idea of spiritual depth psychology you know which again it's sort of a larger question of how do you even define it you know i mean antioch sort of has their definition of it and you may have your own definition and i may have my own but sort of like what it means to each person is sort of like something that i'm interested in sort of finding out so yeah that makes a lot of sense Yeah. yeah Well, um, I guess the other things, yeah, so now that you are seeing clients um, and practicing, I'm curious as to how you find, if you've been able to sort of apply any of the concepts with your clients and how that has been for you. Yeah. um, You know, I think from a... um, I guess there's two big pieces. The one that was most mystifying to me was how people include mindfulness in their practice. Mm-hmm. And this was what I found to be like my broken record question to any time we had um, talks like STP panels or talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was one specifically like a year and a half ago with four women. And I asked like, how do you guys, like this word mindfulness gets tossed around so yeah, uh, freely and asking like how do you what does that mean what does that mean that you use mindfulness in your with your clients Mm -hmm. and um I felt like it kind of confirmed my my suspicion and irritation that it's Mm -hmm. it was very loosely used and it meant different things to different people and so Mm -hmm. that's been a big goal for me to be very clear Mm. that if I use that word I can very succinctly describe like what it is that I'm doing yeah so I think what a responsible clinician you are yeah (laughs) well (laughs) 
but it's more of like my I think it's far more about my self-righteousness than <laughs> okay <anything>. yeah <laughs> seems uh, like hopefully it's gonna be yeah. an effective tool with your clients regardless so how do you define yeah. it so I think more more than not it's about how I am in the room mm. and so mm-hmm. in that regard I would not tell a client that we do mindfulness together mm-hmm. um, I uh, have just started experimenting with leading my clients in some short meditations mm. and um, I actually prefer to use grounding activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can you describe for maybe some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with what that might mean, what that is for you? Sure. So um, the the system of meditation that I um, have been trained in is insight or vipassana meditation mm-hmm. and um within that large umbrella of the word there's two main strains one is concentration practice and the other is insight or um insight's the main word but i think of it as like pulling the threads of experience apart mm-hmm. so you can see things more clearly mm-hmm. and so concentration is something that i typically do because it's pretty simple and it has very useful um, kind of immediate results. So it's typically just paying attention to one object like the breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, by doing that, the body often seems to have a relaxing effect. Mm-hmm. But I'm also quick to like tell clients that relaxation is not the intention. Mm-hmm. It's just a training of bringing the mind back to something. Right. And that seems to have a really useful quality when it comes to Distress is that we often jump off to stories and and, mm-hmm. and get lost in past or future thinking mm-hmm. And so we're just practicing coming back to what's happening right now. Yeah, and there's a lot of value in that. Well, is that a part of the Vipassana meditation style, which is just um, I mean, I believe that in most um, Meditations that I've studied or meditation styles that I've studied it's I mean, it's impossible to avoid having thoughts So that's never the goal but is Vipassana is consistent with that the idea of just watching your thoughts and allowing them to come and go is that similar or because kind of what you're describing is it sounds like a little bit more um like self-exploration of the thoughts but i'm curious about if you're supposed to just sort of let them pass uh it's sort of a side question but yeah it's, yeah, yeah. It's a I think all that. in fact I have, to, I have to recorrect what i said the two main strains so concentration is actually a smaller it's just it's more of the the muscle or like mm. the how big the muscle is when it comes to doing the insight work mm-hmm. the other main strain is the loving kindness piece the oh, meta right. piece mm-hmm. so i take that back but yeah watching mm-hmm. thoughts as a observation of what's happening in mm. the present moment mm-hmm. and not identifying with thoughts that thoughts are like a sixth sense like it's just more data coming into consciousness and mm-hmm. um Okay, yeah. But I definitely have not gotten there with clients yet. Yeah, and that seems like a sort of a, a more detailed, um, I mean, if I were to sort of infer my own opinion, yeah. it would. It seems like that would be more of something that a client might practice outside of the room in terms of their own practice. But Yeah, totally. You and that's probably like, do that in session. Yeah, 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 and that's that line to me of like, I don't want to say we're doing meditation because mm-hmm. this concentration piece to me is, mm-hmm. I think it's an, like an outstanding practice in itself, mm-hmm. but I just think it's a huge thing, like a big bite to pull off when you say we're going to do meditation or mindfulness here because it is, mm-hmm. there's a lot of facets to it, and I'm really 
worried, and this is where I'm at with a few clients, about setting up another thing, because often clients are coming in with feelings of of self-loathing or, or low self-esteem, mm-hmm. of another thing that's going to cause them to, to feel bad if they don't like stick they don't with do it. it. Right. And in my own like journey with meditation, it's taken a lot of effort to just do practice on my own. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would have wanted that expectation when I was starting psychotherapy mm-hmm. as a client. Like it was a lot just to show up mm-hmm. and like be there with someone and explore things. Yeah. So So it sounds like you've come up with a good way to incorporate just using the maybe maybe not grounding techniques for yourself, but whatever sort of um, applications of mindfulness that you sort of align yourself within session and then sort of using some grounding tools. Yeah. Some sort of basic grounding Yeah, like something that we could easily do together Mm -hmm. for, like, so it's typically I'll do, like, maybe three or five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I have, I've had some teachers who, uh, at Antioch, who have been a little uncomfortable with the idea that the therapist would lead the meditation because that might Mm. generate some kind of dependency on me being the meditation person for them. Oh, I see. I don't know where I feel about that. Yeah. It's been kind of a mix, um, yeah. but there's been definitely mixed results with asking a client to then, because I'll set up with like, all right, what do you think about trying this five minutes each day? Yeah. And it's been a mix um, with whether they do that and then how we process that mm-hmm. in the next session. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sounds so, like a great practice, though, that you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm very... Um, I think I'm softening around, like, it might work better with some, and it's just something that we try out. Yeah. But I, I do notice that for people who, for anxiety is so predominant, mm-hmm. that we just need to find a way in the session to calm things down mm-hmm. before we can have a more meaningful session. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, this is sort of a, maybe a technical sounding question but I'm really interested in your um, thoughts about it um, I think that it was during uh, one of Matthew Silverstein's courses I can't remember which one but he gave some language to some of the spiritual depth concepts that he would use with clients or that he sort of uses when describing SDP concepts and I found it to be one of the most productive and informative and helpful five-minute sections of my two-year learning experience (laughs) here in grad school because I feel as though sort of like you were saying in the beginning of the sort of um, woo-woo nature of you know spirituality or spiritual depth psychology or you know I'm sort of like wiggling my body now it's like what is it we don't know that kind of idea you know, I'm I'm kind of okay with the concept of sort of not knowing and sort yeah. of believing in what you believe, but at the same time, when I'm working with clients, I want to, um, you know, of course, make them feel as though I'm a competent clinician, um, which hopefully just comes across in my presence, but also I'm curious about the types of words that therapists use when they're sort of describing or talking about whether it's symptoms or you know, goals or anything like that. Um, And I'm just curious if you have anything that you are aware that you use with your clients. And it sounds like maybe some mindfulness or talking about meditation, like those could be sort of, that would fall into the idea of 
sort of my question in terms of what yeah. language, but I just feel like it's such a it's such a hard thing to approach with clients in a way that's not um, alienating or you know I mean spiritual depth psychology that those three words together automatically to me sort of reads as pretentious and annoying. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I enjoy the concepts that are contained within all of those words, but together it seems very, um, you know. Yeah, it feels like it's everyone like, always gives an asterisk after they say SVP. Like, <laughs> yeah. don't worry, it's not like that we're don't deep worry. people. It's, yeah. not, it's not like we're all just meditating on clouds all day long. Yeah. You know? So I'm just curious about language. Wait, wait tell me what Matthew said because I don't, I don't Oh, know I know. I wish I could remember. Oh. I mean, I have it written down. <laughs> okay. But I guess in the same way that, you know, let's use as sort of the polar opposite, um, maybe the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy and thinking about, you know, automatic thoughts and uh, distorted thinking styles and black and white thinking and core beliefs about yourself and things like that that are sort of tangible concepts within, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, Matthew had some words that he used that were descriptions of sort of, you know, the path working with clients using, you know, STP concepts, but it wasn't it wasn't the shadow self and it mm. wasn't like examining the feminine and the masculine, which is sort of a process of the Jungian perspective, but it just was, you know, insight oriented or, you know, like things like that where I was like, oh, which I guess is also a psychodynamic term you could say. But, um, but yeah, I'm more just curious, not necessarily in the specifics, but just sure. sort of like how you talk to your clients mm. and if you're aware of that even as a thing that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as you were asking, like bringing this up, I, it's making me think around that I, whether, I don't know how much I've really set out to do this, but that I try not to introduce too many of my own words with someone mm. and that I really yeah. use their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a client who is, um, has been wrestling with kind of like an existential conundrum around the limitations of the self. Mm. and how he um, how like when he goes to bed at night it's it's hard to shut off because he feel like he hasn't stretched like the perspective of the like he hasn't seen mm. from it like he feels so stuck in his being a one self person and, and wants to see mm. how far he can stretch that mm-hmm. and as I'm saying this I know that that conversation with him was way too intellectual or felt too intellectual and mm. But, oh, well, so that's a few, well, sorry not to interrupt, but just yeah. the, the idea of like a mind-body connection. I feel like that's something that is sort of a, a hallmark of the idea of sort of SDP concepts. But yeah, continue, please. So when it comes to language, yeah, I don't think I've ever said the word shadow. Yeah. Um, I think clients say the word ego more than I do. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll maybe run with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, And I don't know if this is something that I necessarily learned in SDP, but mm-hmm. I think, but I, well, maybe it's something that I brought into the classes and it got a little more fleshed out and it was largely in Marley's classes with mm-hmm. the relationship between the ego and self. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for me, authenticity mm. is probably like my primary gauge for how I am with someone and what I'm looking, that's like probably the thing I assess first when I'm with someone mm-hmm. is what I 
kind of based on a definition that I have of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Should I share that definition? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you have it handy, I would love to hear it, please. Uh, so this is not my own. This is my, my meditation teacher, George Haas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he, he framed it as authenticity. Uh, while it could extend to other things, it's very much seen in the moment where you could um, kind of change course or, or um, um, present yourself differently in order to keep a connection going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this idea that if I um, do, you know, if, if I notice that someone's looking like they're going to reject me or, or if I say something that I know that they might not be on board with, mm-hmm. the attempt to, I don't want to use the word lie, but to kind of um, shapeshift mm-hmm. in order to keep them close. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, idea of like a persona keeps coming to mind in terms totally. of that's not necessarily really negative or positive it just sort of is something that yeah. you know you sort of develop as a way to be in the world sometimes depending on your different environmental yeah. situation yeah so when a persona like i guess in the Jungian language like when the self gets mistaken with the persona mm, right. um and um and so to push into that moment where there is potential loss mm. um Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that the big challenge with that experience is having enough equanimity, which is that fancy word for not pushing or pulling away from experience, mm. but allowing something typically, we use it in relation to like uncomfortable mm-hmm. or stressful things that we can be with it. So the fear, mm. my teacher calls it abandonment terror, because <laughs> it can be that strong. Yeah. And I, I feel wow. like that very much is the case. Yeah. Um, and so to be with that, and I think um, in the room with someone, uh, especially as a clinician, to say something that I think might be upsetting for someone, like if I'm reporting mm-hmm. on the here and now, mm-hmm. um, that might really, you know, I would perceive otherwise, like hurting someone's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, to like say that as compassionately as possible, but also mm-hmm. like that's what we're here to do. In order to maintain authenticity for yourself as a therapist and someone who's has a relationship with your client. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's often yeah. from especially from my own experience that it's I say I'm in recovery from inauthenticity. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, because it's been so often that the things that I haven't pushed into what's true for me mm-hmm. have been a source of resentment or feeling uh, feelings of like self-loathing and mm. uh, like opportunities lost. Yeah. Well, and I mean what I'm just as you're saying that, it's such a powerful subject, that idea. Um, but I'm remembering um, that my supervisor said something so great to me um, when I first started training, which was how am I to, to basically examine how am I not being authentic with my clients or how am I being inauthentic with my clients, if at all. Mm. Um, and I think one of the ways that I um, came up against that topic for myself was um, trying to make peace with the idea of, on the one hand, how I thought I should be as a therapist and sort of my general presence or my way of speaking. I had this idea of what I should be in terms of pulling from therapists that I've had or of mentors that I have or teachers. 
and sort of wanting to embody those qualities and be that. And then on the other hand, sort of who I am. <laughs> and so I found that one of the ways that I sort of acknowledged my own sort of inauthenticity in a way that most likely was imperceptible to every single one of my clients, but still was coming up for me, was just in a sense of I felt like I was being sort of a, a an act of a person that I wanted to be versus just myself with my clients. And that was so strange for me because I've never, as of recently, I haven't had that experience of sort of feeling like I needed to act something to become it, you know, and it was based on my own insecurity around being a new therapist. But that question of sort of pushing into, you know, where am I being like inauthentic in my interactions with my clients is such a powerful one. Yeah. So. But you bring yeah. up a good point because there are these, these, I mean, you could almost make an argument that like thing I want to be is authentic. So I'm trying out authenticity. Oh, right. as like a, <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think I know what you're saying. Like it's, yeah. Um, but that's definitely been the struggle of like finding just how I am in the room. Like mm -hmm. that's, you know, as much as like we have these therapeutic qualities before we started this, yeah, it is a whole new ball game. As far as yeah. yeah. No. And that's also a good point um, that you bring up too, you know, is the idea that it might be okay to try and channel some of my mentors or people that mm -hmm. I really respect as you know, professors or, you know, I really respect my supervisor. I think she's an amazing, you know, supervisor. And yeah. so I, I want to be like her. I want to have the same powerful energy and just, you know, healing presence, you know. So I think to a certain extent, it's helpful to, you know, have people that, you know, yep. are mentors or that you want to, you know, aspire to be like. Um, but I think for me, it was coming up in a way that I wasn't feeling as though, I was coming through enough as just me, myself, who I am, who I sort of know myself to be, and that I was trying to be something else before I was sort of there already. Yeah. Um, and so that was where it was sort of like hurting my soul a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's where it was like not healthy for me. But yeah. yeah. But that's such an interesting, yeah. I love that concept. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, um, you know, we, you and I took uh, Mark Trosen's um, yeah. erotic transference and countertransference class, and mm -hmm. um, what I think it ultimately authenticity allows for is a strong connection. Mm -hmm. um, and I think where it was often getting away for me is the thing I wanted to be seen from other people, and um, was was not being expressed. So mm -hmm. there was no way they were connecting to the thing that was really valuable to me. Mm. It was more they were connecting to the persona that that was intended to get them to like me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that then cancels out the chance of like a really meaningful... Of a deeper sort of sense of connection yeah. with, with people. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think about one of the the big things I've taken away from Antioch was in that class of this idea of eros mm -hmm. or um, kind of libido and, and a, that that charge of energy that yeah. like life force that we connect with each other on. Yeah. Um, and I liked how much it was expanded much farther than just sexual energy. Yeah, me um, too. And, and how, like looking for that, and I think Mark said something to the effect of if that is not involved, there's something, like, therapy isn't really happening. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, how you build on that or how you sort of 
build that um, therapeutic alliance, it's mm-hmm. called, in terms of like connecting with a client, can happen so many different ways. But I also really responded to the idea of, you know, expanding the idea of arrows far beyond the idea of I feel sexually attracted to you or you feel sexually attracted to me and therefore it's erotic counter-transference or erotic transfer, you know. Going into that class, I kind of didn't understand how it could be a 10-week course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, immediately was so enlivened by the idea of, oh, it's just a, a juicy energy feeling of exchange and is healthy and should be fostered in the relationships. That's such a sort of like mind just got blown moment five of class yeah. sort of experience for me. So that was, yeah. yeah. That, that's not like a like a one-time conversation, like, oh, I want to have sex with my my therapist, like, let's talk about that, but it's mm-hmm. something to be, like, monitored and, yeah, and, like, really held, mm-hmm. like, with with great care and, and enjoyment in a, to a degree. Yeah. Like, when we, when we t- tap into it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Well, um, any other things you want to talk about working with clients? I have a couple other questions, but wrapping up, so, yeah. Um, uh, let's hear your other questions. Okay, my other, well, my other questions are basically, um, I'm trying to incorporate a little bit of some recommendations for books that people might enjoy, mm. and if you don't have anything off the top of your head, fine, but if you have anything that you're reading right now that you are enjoying, or maybe that you've read for past courses um i'd love to love to hear um the the book i'm reading right now and it's funny because i i guess attachment theory Mm. has not been explicitly included in sdp um is it not i guess it's more of sort of a psychodynamic truncated concept but that's not specifically sdp i guess you're right yeah yeah um and I guess a lot of where I'm coming from as far as like the mindfulness piece and um, and the depth orientation, so the depth like being different levels of, of awareness. Mm-hmm. There's consciousness and unconsciousness. But um, uh, it's a book by a guy named Dan Brown, not, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the Da Vinci Code. Not Dan the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown. <laughs> um, and I'm forgetting the second author, but it's called... Uh, um, attachment disturbances in adults, mm. um, and it's uh, really given me some some much more useful expectations for what um, for incorporating attachment theory into into therapy Mm -hmm. and specifically this idea that the therapist can become a secure base for the client Mm. and that that's a kind of shaky idea just based on how much time we spend with someone Mm -hmm. and how long it takes for someone to really internalize an other. Mm. Um, It's a kind of a a shaky concept in terms of sort of the general consensus in the field of attachment theory. Yeah, at least these two. I mean, I think this is still pretty qualitative. I think they use some empirical quantitative research mm-hmm. um, and they use I think largely the AAI the adult attachment interview oh, which is like I don't know the, about that one. yeah it's like the the gold standard for assessing attachment style but oh, it's wow. a very lengthy test and scoring process so it's, mm. it's not as it's not used as often mm-hmm. um, but the this idea that I could 
really become a secure base for someone mm. is a pretty is a lot is very wishful thinking mm. um, and that we need to do other things in order for someone to internalize secure strategies mm -hmm. um, and so that's been that's really cool that sounds fascinating yeah. Um, yeah I haven't I haven't done a lot of uh, other like explicitly spiritual reading oh that's stuff. okay yeah yeah well and also something that I appreciated about um, the conversation that I had with Mark Trotson was that who's a professor here um, is that he I sort of posed the same question to him um, and his answer in so many words, was that um, looking outside to culture mm -hmm. is oftentimes such a rich and interesting way to learn about whatever concepts you're sort of exploring in your other areas of research or study. Yeah. Um, and he gave an example of a teacher of his or of a, a spiritual person that he sort of held in very high esteem who was fascinated by um, the Olympics mm -hmm. and watching professional sports and got so much out of it in terms of learning about myths and things being played out. And so I was so, you know, I mean, part of me was using it as an excuse to watch more Netflix and think <laughs> that I'm doing, you know, something great for my um, role as a therapist in the world. But also that that's such a, a true sort of statement about what is happening in terms of the cultural unconscious of the time and what shows are being made and what is in museums and galleries and what are you know, the images that people are creating. So yeah, I thought that was, you know, that basically it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be reading a spiritual book to sort of have a spiritual practice or mm -hmm. some kind of, or if we don't love the word spiritual, you know, some kind of a, a deeper understanding of, you know, how you're exploring these concepts of, you know, depth psychology. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you extended it past books because I think that also yeah, is definitely. where, so the, the biggest thing that I've been doing is ecstatic dance, oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. which uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's um, I think the, the people that I've been learning with, or at least who have been holding space, uh, come out of five rhythms, which I don't have much experience, but it's mm. it's like the shamanic tradition and for me It's mostly meant to do authentic movement mm. um, But as far as the practice it has been amazing From a really experiential relational like what happens when I enter a room um, and where I like how I pay attention to my body oh, wow. and I think I, I claim that like pretty much every relational feeling comes up in these two-hour dances that I go to. Wow. So from like extreme loneliness to like what the hell am I doing? I look like an idiot dancing right now. <laughs> to when I do sometimes dance with someone else, like my fears to feeling really connected and intimate to like what does this mean that we've danced now together and yeah. like are we going to talk after and um, um, and what's it like to dance in a collective? Mm -hmm. And it's just this like unfolding of one layer, I think like the self, I get, I think it's as close to this idea of the multifaceted self mm -hmm. that I get to encounter. Wow. Um, and for me, often the peak experience part of it is when I become far less, for lack of a better word, like self, um, self-conscious, which is, of course, like the opposite of what I mean, because it is 
then becoming very self-conscious in an experiential way, but mm. it's more ego death-like where I'm not so concerned with mm-hmm. how I look right now. It's a freeing sort of feeling, it yeah, sounds like. Yeah, and I start yeah. to really like get into flow with like the experience itself, yeah. and there's just like almost this fuzzy line of am I moving or is like the movement moving me, you know, is the music and dance moving me? Yeah. Uh, and then especially if I'm dancing with like one or two other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been such a like rich metaphor for my own therapy as a client, but also as a clinician Yeah. yeah. and like what that back and forth is. And um, yeah, so that's been amazing. That sounds like such a rich thing to engage in. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end. So thank you again so much oh, for, for coming me. on Evan Perlow. It's been a pleasure <laughs> as always. So with that, thank you again. This project is made with the assistance and supervision of Professor Jacqueline Pinn, Antioch University, and the Spiritual Depth Psychology Program here at Antioch University, Los Angeles.